I think when I first started traveling, I was scared. I mean, I didn't have that much money. I left to Hawaii with a one-way ticket, 60 hits of acid and a lid of grass and $200. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, just the essentials. <laughs> just the basics, and I was gone five years, so... <laughs> Welcome to the Dandelion Effect podcast, a space for organic conversation about the magic of living a connected life. Just like the natural world around us, we are all linked through an intricate web, a never-ending ripple that spans across the globe. Here, we explore the ideas that our guests carry through the world, remember who and what inspired them along the way, and uncover the seeds that help them blossom into their unique version of this human experience. This podcast is a production of the Feather Pipe Foundation, whose mission is to help people find their direction through access to programs and experiences that support healing, education, community, and empowerment. In the days of digital nomads, geotagging, and endless sources of technological communication, it's sometimes hard to believe how people traveled without knowing anything about the places they were visiting. With no blog posts or reviews to read, and certainly no way to touch in with friends in real time, unless you were right there next to one another, people hitched rides, slept in bus terminals, and leaned on poor translation and big-hearted strangers for their next moves. These are the details that make up the stories of today's guest, Vijay Supra, a wild woman of adventure, laughter, and endless curiosity. Vijay is the sister of Feather Pipe Foundation founder, India Supra, and she has been traveling to the most remote corners of the world for nearly 55 years. She rarely, if ever, has taken the comfortable route. Now, at 77 years old, she's still making her rounds, though trips have taken a different meaning than they did in the days of 20-something wanderlust. With my pleasure, I got to sit down with Vijay in her house in Helena, Montana, where we shared a pot of chai tea in her living room lined with art and travel books. We yuck it up, as she would say, about her upbringing with bohemian parents, the role of creativity and spirituality in her life, experimentation with LSD and other drugs in the hippie era, and stories of her travels to far-off lands, dressing like a man and hitchhiking through Tibet on cargo jeeps, stumbling into a yak drive on a caravan mission to Turkmenistan, and living under a tree outside of Guru Sai Baba's ashram in India. If you've been to the ranch, you may have had the pleasure of meeting her at one of Vijay's Bazaar Bazaars, where she spreads out on the lawn and sells ancient beads, rugs, fabrics, and other one-of-a-kind items from the Middle East and Central Asia. She's a summer staple at the Feather Pipe Ranch and has become a very important person in my life over the years, always reminding me to take chances, find adventure, and just have fun. If I have half as much adventure as she has had, I'd consider this to be a life very well lived. I'm Andy Vantries, and you're listening to the Dandelion Effect podcast with today's special guest, Vijay Supra. I think it's so fascinating because I know the life that you've led and it's been very like non-traditional in a lot of ways mm -hmm. or what people would consider to be non-traditional just compared to the era that I grew up in it was very different yeah. for you growing up and knowing that you came from really interesting parents right and very humble background poor yeah. 
maybe we can start with my parents, huh? Before. Yeah. Yeah, because they were the interesting ones. Yeah. So tell me about your parents. I know that your dad, Jules, was an artist. He was a potter. He, uh, after the, the war, he had a GI Bill and he went to Alfred University. And I think he got a degree from there. And then uh, I was born upstate New York. My mother and father met, I think, on a blind date, and she was uh, supposed to be with his brother, but anyway, she ended up with him, and they got married, and my dad had a uh, junkyard back in the day. That's what he had, and my mother was uh, a city girl, and she grew up in, let's see, Brooklyn, it must have been then, or the Bronx, and she, she was a private detective before she met my dad. So when me and my sister were growing up, you know, we found that so fascinating. We'd say, teach us to dust for fingerprints. Tell us about (laughs) the time we were on stakeout with Howard and and, uh, someone threw a bottle of acid on you and tell us this story and tell us that story. And then my parents were educated because we grew up kind of in a, you know, those houses they built after the war, those neighborhoods. So I think my parents were the only ones in that whole neighborhood that had graduated from high school even. Mm. But we had lots of friends there. We grew up relatively easy in Southern California back then. It was it was wide open. And even as a teenager, you could go anywhere you want, yeah. do everything you wanted. There was just, there were no rules back then or dangers that we knew of. And what years was this? I was born in 44, so I was growing up in the, the 50s. And I went to high school from, uh, you know, 60 to 62 like that. So... Those were the times that we ran around California and mm-hmm. Hollywood and the beaches and did whatever we wanted. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was... And what was it that you wanted to do? Like, uh, what did you do with your We friends? liked to cruise around mostly. Cars were the best thing, hot cars. If a boy had a convertible or some some nice car that was all fixed up and you would drive around, you know, the, the drive-ins and go to the beach or you'd go to Hollywood or you just do a lot of things. It was, you could just do anything you wanted and it was, mm-hmm. and it, I think it was safe. Were you and India born in New York? We were both born in New York, upstate New York, and I think I was probably about two or three when my parents trekked out to California because I was always sick in the weather and so uh, they had like an old 32 Buick and we pulled a trailer of all my dad's art supplies and pottery supplies and we crossed America and we ended up in South Laguna Beach. <laughs> and so uh, we stayed there till we found another house in, in Downey and then after that we found another house that my parents bought like for $8,000 because wow. of the, the GI Bill type thing, you know. And then I grew up there from the 50s to 62. Yeah, something mm-hmm. like that. So, mm-hmm. what I know about the '60s, um, just what was happening politically, what was happening in the collective consciousness, and that decade started a lot of things. Uh, that was kind of pretty much way after I graduated from high school, because I graduated in '62, and then you know I got married right after high school type thing. And then by the time I got divorced, I think it was three years later, and then the world was changing. But 62, it was still calm and quiet, and there wasn't any of the hippie stuff, and there wasn't any of the war protesting. So I I think I remember it mostly in 67. Okay. Yeah. After we got divorced, that's when I went up to, uh, to Lake Tahoe to get a job as a cocktail waitress or something. But then on the way back... My mother got killed in a car accident mm. when her and my dad were driving back. So then that changed everything for us, you know. So my sister and I came back to California then, and we stayed with my dad for a while, and she was getting ready to go to Asia, but I wasn't ready for that yet. So I bought a ticket to Hawaii and lived in, 
in the islands for about a year, which was very primitive then and a lot of fun. And that's probably when I, I started being a little bit of a hippie in California, like trying the drugs and things. But once I went to Hawaii, I really did a lot. Mm. of drugs <laughs> and there were other travelers there yeah other the hippies thing. there and we yeah. all live kind of jungly and communal and things like that mm -hmm. so obviously losing your mom in your 20s early 20s yeah. how did that just unfold and continue to shape I think it took a, a long time because it was an accident and when someone dies in an accident you always expect them to walk through the door yeah again so I think it took many years before I was balanced again I don't think I was that happy. Yeah, of Just, course. Yeah. India had told me that you all grew up culturally Jewish, but that your dad was really into different philosophies and Hinduism and just exploratory bohemian spiritual practice. Did it play any role in your younger life? Yeah, I think so because my family was so bohemian and our house was so jungly with kind of furniture that wouldn't break or things like that. So all the kids wanted to be at our house because <laughs> yeah. we could do anything we wanted over there. It was very free. Yeah, and my dad was interested in a lot of things. He spoke several languages. He was kind of a genius because mm -hmm. he could, you know, he knew clay bodies, glazes. And in fact, I don't know if I ever told you, those were my first toys growing up was old cones that have melted over or clay and things yeah. like that. So I started at a young age knowing about, you know, what he did. Did you pick up on any values or understanding? Like, what do you remember them instilling in you as like how to live well or how to be a good person? They were very straightforward. They weren't devious kind of people. They were very honorable people. So mm -hmm. they taught us that and they taught us to do what we want and have self-confidence and things like that. They really gave us a lot of self-confidence. Mm -hmm. We were pretty free-range back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> Before free-range was talking about chickens and yeah. <laughs> organics. <laughs> free-range humans. Yeah. Mm. And your dad as an artist, I mean, just sitting in your living room, it's like, yeah, this is also a house of an artist <laughs> as a jewelry maker and a lot of the things that you do. What role did art and creativity play? Oh, it played a lot because, yeah. you know, he threw on the potter's wheel, the kind of old kick wheel, and, you know, he taught us how to do that. And he knew all kinds of art. He was, you know, he could draw, he could paint, he could... But ceramics was his forte. Okay. So his garage was always so interesting because there was he made his own equipment and it was all weird out there with jars of chemicals and glazes and things like that. So it was very interesting. Yeah. It was great. And then my mom worked and my dad stayed home when we were younger to take care of us because he was making pottery. So my mom had the jobs mostly mm -hmm. till maybe the 60s. That was pretty rare. Yeah, it was rare. And she did... Um, but since she was a, a working girl in New York, I don't think she found it rare at all. I think mm -hmm. she found that was her habit. They were very different. She was city and he was country. Did you guys stay close to your dad after your mom passed? He met a, a new woman where he was working and her name was Susie and she was like about eight years older than me. But she was really nice and she had two young kids of her own or three and my dad helped raise them and we liked her a lot, you know, because she really helped my dad and mm -hmm. kind of loosened him up with life and, and they had a real good time together. They used to travel a lot and do things. So yeah, we were really, you know, we got we were still close even though we were... We'd come and go, and I took him to India once to meet Sai Baba oh, and Susan. Really? Yeah, they were up for travel. 
So let's get into the travel side of things because I feel like it, well, when was the summer of love? 69. 69. Okay. So you were saying things started to ramp up as far as hippies and yeah the hippie era in 67 right um what sparked your interest in wanting to go to hawaii i think you know the start of taking drugs was helped to open things up and then i went and and lived there and i used to travel just buy one-way tickets and Mm -hmm. have a hundred dollars to my name or two hundred dollars and try to set up a life and somehow (laughs) you could always do that back then I know, I'm jealous. <laughs> it was just kind of a natural thing. So, but I did love the islands, and I lived um, on the North Shore in Waikiki. I just took more drugs and met more friends, and everyone was traveling then, and my sister was already overseas. So um, I decided that I'll go there, and eventually her and I will meet up in India. Mm-hmm. What were the drugs that you were experimenting with? LSD and marijuana and what else? Maybe um, mushroom stuff, maybe some speed. I think we used to take speed back then. <laughs> yeah, we just kind of experimented with them all, but LSD was kind of our favorite. Mm-hmm. What one. would you do? Oh, in Hawaii, it was great because it's such a... It's so interesting there and so trippy there anyway. You'd be tripping if you were in the country. You could go to, uh, they had the old pill boxes left over from the war and these sleuths. There was a lot of country then and you could walk in the country or go in the ocean or just do a million things. Yeah. You could just really have a good time. Watch yeah. the tide come in out and out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like an entire yeah. day's worth of yeah. experiences just sitting on the beach and watching that. Did you enjoy like having those experiences in nature mostly yeah and then sometimes we do it in the city like Waikiki but that was always more intense because you know you'd be around too many people but yeah we liked it more in the countryside and it was it was nice we probably took it once or twice a week type acid which was a lot but um yeah, it was good acid then, and you know it wasn't dangerous. I don't think back in the day. World. It's a different world. Do you have any particular experience that stands out in your mind that really was pivotal, or like you know some type of awakening or understanding? I think when I first started traveling, I was scared. I mean, I didn't have that much money. I left to Hawaii with a one-way ticket, sixty hits of acid, and a lid of grass, and two hundred dollars. <laughs> I was, just the essentials. <laughs> just the basics, and I was gone five years. So. Yeah. So nowadays, it's hard for me to get used to that you can't travel like that, because yeah. just recently, I went to Mexico with a one-way ticket, and that did not work out one really? bit. You know? Really? Okay, so you're in Hawaii. India is in India at this point? Let's see, in 68, she traveled differently because I came the Pacific route and she came the Atlantic route. So she was, you know, went to uh, Afghanistan and the Middle East and Pakistan and then got to India where I went from, you know, Hawaii down to Singapore, up to Malaysia, up to Laos, Thailand, and then flew to Calcutta. So we went different ways and then we just met up there later on. Okay. Yeah. Well, and what I think is so fascinating about you guys traveling back then is like everything is so in the present moment. It's not like you're on WhatsApp with somebody saying, okay, I'll meet you in Calcutta, yeah. you know, at this time. You're sending like, what did, what did they call them? Like aerograms? Well, we, India used to call them mindgrams. We try to get hold of each other with <laughs> mental telepathy. <laughs> because you're right. I mean, you could send an aerogram, but... You know, you'd have to send it to say, they'd say, oh, 
I think your sister's in, you know, maybe in North India, so you'd have to send it to the postal response deli, and hopefully she picked it up, you know, or something like yeah. that. I wish I did have those aerograms from back then, but I think we did finally get a hold of each other, and there was a few, you know, hippies back then that you can ask in India. It was there longer, so she was kind of a famous hippie, and I could say, oh, do you know where India is? And they'd say, mm -hmm. oh, I think she went to Kandahar for the hash festival, and, you know, like this and that, and then finally you'd find each other, believe yeah. it or not. <laughs> yeah, that's so crazy. I mean, even when I was traveling over there a few years ago, there is a circuit. We would run into the same people in northern Vietnam, and then you'd see them again in southern Vietnam, and then you'd see them in the Philippines. Right. And it's, I mean, at least what I'm familiar with is that whole Southeast Asia area. Right. And there does seem to be a hippie trail, but it's so interesting to me to think about what it was like, you know, in the early 70s, how fewer people were doing it. Right, but the people I think were doing it were like, say, the hippies in India, you know, you saw them periodically. You'd see the same ones kind of over and over mostly mm -hmm. because they were, you know, you'd go to Delhi, you'd go to Kathmandu, you'd go to Bombay, you'd go to a lot of uh, Varanasi. A lot of people would be going to the same places, mm -hmm. so just at different times. But you'd find somebody that you knew or somebody that knew somebody you knew. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was really like that. It was really a lot of mental telepathy. I think I've heard Howard say that, there were also scheduling done around the moon, like full moon party on... Dropping know, acid on the full moon. Dropping acid on the full moon, and then you know that on the full moon there's going to be a gathering, so you just find out where that gathering right, is, and right. then you know you're running into people there. That's how I met India. We When we finally got hold of each other, we said, we'll meet in Almora for the full moon in September. So ours is exactly right. We met by the moons. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> To really actually use that as a form of timekeeping. Yeah, when you think about it, it's true because there's only a full moon's only once a month or mm -hmm. something, so you'd know exactly where you'd have to be then. What do you remember about why you were traveling? You know, were you in search of something? Were you just trying to find some good drugs and have a good time? Were you on a spiritual path? What do you think about when you think back on that? You know, that's a good question because I think when you get to India, you know, it's so spiritual there. Even if you're smoking chillums, it's with Lord Shiva and you're thinking about these things, especially in the Indian Himalayas or in Nepal with all the Tibetans. And it, you know, you start really, as soon as I think you land in Asia or the Buddhist countries, it makes you start to think right there. You might not know in your mind that you're thinking that, mm -hmm. but you go, oh God, I'm staying at this Buddhist monastery. Then you'd see the religion and the people. And so I think it just kind of absorbed in you without you even thinking about it. Mm -hmm. You know, later on when we met Bob, it was like, you know, some people would still be traveling around. Some people would find a guru. That was kind of the other thing. After you traveled around in India a lot, people really did want to settle down. Mm -hmm. Some hippies chose Goa because, you know, that was like really kind of free living and it wasn't like being in India. It was like being in the holiday from India. I think if you traveled there long enough and you saw enough things, you just started thinking about it. That's how that happened for us. Mm -hmm. Was it being exposed to that spirituality or that religious side of things or was it more about the people that you met or the rituals? Like what aspects of that culture really spoke to you and I don't think it was any aspect in particular I was just 
you know, you just see it and you think, what is that? How is that working, you know? Mm -hmm. Then you try meditation and then you try these different things and get some ideas. I think it came slowly, slowly. For me, it did. I mean, I thought about different things, but I didn't know about them that much. And it wasn't till after Indy and I met up in Elmore in 69 that her and I traveled all over India together until we met Baba, and that was March of 1970. Are you like hitchhiking around? Yes. Are you still just like, one day, one moment at a time? <laughs> Definitely. We were always on a, a shoestring and, you know, just didn't know where you'd exactly end up or if you'd get any money or if you'd have anything to eat. You just kind of kept going. But then we had heard from a friend of India's, uh, Leela, she said, I think it was even way before we went to Sai Baba's, that she was going to come to Sai Baba's and she'd bring us some money. So that's why we went there was to get the money and then go oh. to Kandahar and get some hash. So you go to the spiritual center <laughs> to meet somebody to get money to go get some hash. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we had heard about Sai Baba. We started hearing about him more and more as we were getting kind of closer. And then it was a big festival when we got there. And it took several, like, overnight buses and... We did get some money. It was kind of a miracle we got some money. And India remembered the story really well that my dad had sent us a check to Postal Restaurant somewhere and we got it. But how do you cash a check in India? But we knew somebody that was a bank president and they arranged so we could cash this check and we got $100. And so that's how we got to travel, you know, more to, to see Sai Baba. We could take buses and trains instead mm -hmm. of hitchhiking. So, How long would $100 last you? You know, it could last a really, really long time if you didn't lose it or give it away. But, you know, you try to really stretch it out for months. <laughs> if you could or you got careless and just blew it. <laughs> I always think about kind of the traits that are required to be able to travel the way that you traveled. And to travel in this moment-to-moment -moment way, it really requires you to be okay with uncertainty and to be okay with the vulnerability of like, this could potentially not go well, yeah. you know, and have to be extroverted enough to meet people mm -hmm. because you find out that the people that you know are like your lifeline, you know, mm -hmm. the kindness of strangers and the ability to sit down next to somebody and say, hey, I'm VJ, where are you going tonight? Or what are you doing? And so I feel like that there's all of these different personality traits and social skills that enable somebody to travel the way that you did. Right. Do you have any like reflections on whether you acquired them as you went along? I think I acquired them as I went along. Okay. Because I don't think you would go fly somewhere and think, okay, this is gonna be perfectly okay. You just fly somewhere and don't think about it. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only thing you can do. <laughs> if you start to think too much about it, that wouldn't be a good idea. Mm -hmm. Better not to think about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> India was bolder than I was and less worried than I was, but she had been doing it longer. So when we traveled together, I think I depended on her quite a bit, mm -hmm. you know, on her savvy and stuff. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like you were scared or anything. You just said, oh, well, I guess I'll have to sleep on this platform tonight. You know, it was just like you just you did what you had to do. Yeah. I guess I won't eat dinner tonight. Maybe I can find some food tomorrow. You know? Yeah. I know, at least from my experience, the ups and downs of living in that way. Like, sometimes you can just get really in your head and go, like, what the hell am I doing here? Mm -hmm. Why am I still doing this existential crisis? <laughs> what yeah. is life all about? Or even just, like, where am I going to sleep? And then something happens and you come out of it or you meet somebody and it 
right. this new relationship leads to this new place or whatever it is. But do you have any memories of really challenging time periods or really challenging days? I was sick a lot. I mean, I got infections. I got, I mean, I, you got to keep moving, but you know, sure. no, you never did feel top of your game ever. So I think you learn to run like that, you know, and sleep not good. And so I think by the time we were getting ready to go to Sai Baba's, I had in my mind, I hope he's a real sadhu. I hope he's a real God because I'm really exhausted. <laughs> and then you wanted to be able to just like relax and yes. be there. Yeah. And, yeah. And be safe and things like that. Yeah. Not that I ever thought I was unsafe, but just, you know, so you didn't have to, to think so much or yeah. do anything like that. So, and that turned out to be true. So can you tell me about a particular experience that you had at Sai Baba's that made you realize his divinity? You know, he called India and I in for an interview right after Shivaratri for our first interview. And we were so blown away by his energy. Me and India walked up the hill and we were smoking a beady. And we said, oh my God, we're amping on acid. I've never felt this high before in our lives. Both of us did. Then we met him. He said, stay with me. I'll, you know, I'll take care of you. And there were a few other foreigners too, but we went to another area, Bangalore. India and I and a few other people, we were out living under a tree. Outside he, of the ashram? Yeah, just under a tree. And But we could do that because of our hippie days. It didn't bother us. You know, one day, India got really mad because Baba said he would call us and, and he didn't. So she said, I'm leaving. And I said, well, I'm going to stay. I just want to meet Baba. So she, she was said, I'm going to find another guru or saint. And so she got on the bus. She went to Bangalore. And in the evening, for some reason, she ended back where Baba was. And he had called all us. At, and, and, but... India was missing and he kept asking for her and then she finally found him you know because he was going to have us all for dinner and she was all gritty from the bus and stuff like that and he had a load of water and he poured it so she could wash her hands. Then we both got really addicted to Baba and then we he gave us a place to live inside the ashram in Whitefield and then Howard came down because he found out that we met God <laughs> and he wanted to meet and, him too. <laughs> and Howard and India had met? Yeah, in 68 and yeah. I met Howard and Elmore in 69. Okay. So we were good friends with Howard and so, you know, he was always looking for God too. I think all of us in our own ways were kind of looking for something spiritual. We didn't know how to say it or anything yeah. or I didn't but we did want something we wanted some peace now looking back did it feel more like a personal reasons or was it more of like there's so much crazy stuff going on in the world looking for more of like a collective peace or like a you know there's got to be some purity or some good you know I think we realized that if you want to be better in the world or have a better life, you have to be better. And I think we realized that early on. And so when we were Sai Baba, he told us how to meditate, told us what to do. We sang bhajans and we did a lot of uh, kind of spiritual things to slow you down and think. We weren't trying to find food. We weren't trying to, you know, survive. I mean, we lived very primitive in the ashram, but it was easy compared to how we lived on the road because at least it was safe there. And at least you knew you had a place to stay. Yeah, at least we would stay in the, on the same roof every night, you know, yeah. or under the same <laughs> yeah. tree. We weren't moving around. <laughs> yeah, that makes a huge difference. That does I make mean, a huge like, difference. <laughs> when you're on the road like that, mm -hmm. all of your energy is going towards 
like what's next. Yes. So it's hard to be, even though you are in the present moment, it's a lot of the worry and the mind spiral can be, you know, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? Well, see, even if we stayed in one place like Varanasi for a while, it was still always jungly because you were sleeping out. You didn't have any money. So there was, even though you were there for a month, it wasn't like relaxing. And, you know, we lived on those hippie houseboats and you were still getting up in the morning thinking we need some food and mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. Where at Sai Baba, as you know, when you got up in the morning, you knew you were going to go to meditation or budgeons or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So it was a whole another thing. And there was another, there was a, a young group of people there, you know, that some of them were hippies, some of them were straight, but we all kind of came together like a family. Yeah. And it really did draw a diverse crowd of people. I mean, after a while, weren't there like celebrities coming right and right it's it seems like at least my view of that time period it's like a lot of people were seeking mm -hmm. something so. deeper or some you know explanation or understanding or yeah peace like you said right yeah i think a lot of people were seeking then because you know the the hippie types we dropped a lot of drugs and we just said, well, there's got to be something else. And then, you know, regular people had heard about Baba or something and came over. And so by the late 70s, Baba's was really crowded with a lot of people. But when we first got there, we were kind of the first group. You know, I lived there till 73. And then I'd come back and forth, back and forth. And for maybe about 10 years, I missed it because I was mostly in Pakistan then. But my whole life, it's been for almost 50 years, back and forth, back and forth. Mm -hmm. And then as, you know, we were with Swami longer, we didn't get to see him that much. The crowds were bigger. Mm -hmm. We didn't get that personal, because he gave us that group. He was so personal with us for about well over a year that we had sang with him budgeons every night. He gave us interviews all the time. We felt like he was family. I'm just conscious of maybe people listening not knowing what it means to do budgeons and give interviews like oh, sure. what does that whole thing look like at the ashram yeah budgeons is chanting so uh they would do that twice a day in um at the ashram and interviews baba would walk around to give darshan which you know means sight of the lord so he'd walk around the people take letters talk to different people and then he'd call people in for interviews and that meant you had a really closeness of Swami, a, a room smaller than this with a, and a lot of people would just pack in somehow we all fitted in mm -hmm. and he'd sit on a chair and he'd tell stories or he'd talk to people or materialize things so you got to be was like a one-on-one -on -one. you were really close to him mm -hmm. and so that that was when you came out of those interviews just kind of blown away like yeah. oh my god <laughs> yeah something about his energy yeah, and just the very, power that was in his being it was very addicting how I see teachers and how I see um, guides or even what might be considered gurus is the people that point you back to the divinity in yourself, yes. you know, and there doesn't like have to necessarily be a priest or somebody in between you and your relationship with that's right. the divine. That's right. And that's what Swami tried to teach us all along. It was just between you and God, you know, but we crave that energy. We crave that kind of love that he would give yeah. us. Even though we, we knew it very well, you still always want more and more of it. But then you, we got kind of weaned and we'd have to depend on our own type of meditation and doing things it is kind of like a mother and father relationship you get that unconditional love right but then you at a certain point you know you individuate and you 
separate and you go off into the world with everything that they've taught you and everything that they've helped you to see in yourself. Exactly. That's exactly it. That's Mm -hmm. exactly it. So as we were there, you know, longer and longer, we got, I mean, he'd come out for Darshan still and do those things, but, you know, we didn't get to talk to him as much or, but we knew what we were supposed to be doing and how Mm -hmm. to get better and be a better person. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we learned a lot of that from him. Mm -hmm. I think everything. Yeah. And service was such a huge teaching of his. How did that kind of land with you and carry on in your life? Right. Like he'd say, selfless service, service to someone is like service to God. I don't know if I ever did that good a job in it or not. You know, sometimes I'm still trying to help people here and there or do some nice things and not be not be mean even. <laughs> That's a main thing, mm-hmm. not being mean. You just do the best you can and every day you wake up thinking, okay, I can do this a little better type thing and try yeah. to do something better. Well, I think that, I mean, from my perspective at least as long as I've known you, service is such a huge part of what I think of when I think of you. And it's not always in this like grandiose way. Mm -hmm. It's like when I was in Nepal trekking Mm -hmm. and you're like, hey, I have friends in Kathmandu, you know, get in touch with them, go meet up with them. One of them was a young girl that you were sponsoring through school. Right, right not a shout out of this is what I'm doing and this is how I'm serving but it's like the more I've gotten to know you the more I see that your tentacles of service are all underground and connected to a lot of different people I think you're right and maybe I don't think that is enough service but yeah it's true because we have people over in Nepal and India and Pakistan we're always looking after one way or the other and seeing they're going to be okay and sending them money or just checking on them your network and your community of the people that you help and the people who have helped you is huge. <laughs> it probably is, and I've never thought of it that way, but you're totally right because it is huge. I think I could tell you I'm going to any country and you would know somebody there. <laughs> Anywhere in the Pacific, that's for sure. I know, it feels like that. So I want to hear about, you kind of refer to it as like your big first adventure to Western Tibet. Uh-huh. Um, because that seems like it just sparked a fire within you that has not died. Yeah. You know, for your entire <laughs> life of that type of like overland, difficult travel, corners of the world that very few people, yes. you know, have gone to as tourists. Um, so tell me about that first trip to Western Tibet. You know, once I learned about Lord Shiva and Manasarova and Mount Kailash being his mystical home, and I always liked Lord Shiva because we'd be up in the Himalayas and you could feel that power of Lord Shiva. I always wanted to go there, but I didn't know that um, getting to Western Tibet, because I got to Tibet in 87, it was still super hard to get up there and restricted, but at least you could kind of take off and travel by yourself. You know, now you couldn't go to Mount Kailash, I don't think, without a group or something. Mm -hmm. But uh, I wanted to go so bad that I found a Tibetan to hitchhike with me. (laughs) So, (laughs) Because you always have to deal with truck drivers and things like that. And we would just rode on top of trucks. And we got stranded somewhere for about a week because that's how it was up there. It was so remote. But then finally I found some people that I knew from Lhasa so I could send him off and just travel with them. So that was a lot better, a lot less stressful. And we were closer to our destination then. And it was it was just a long trip. So you needed a lot of patience. I don't think we had any time limits, which was good. 
I mean, now you have to think about when your money runs out, right? Um, which I'm sure you were thinking about too, but like, you know, you could just get way further. It was hard to get in. I mean, you know, I don't know how I got my visa. My friends Roy and Diane got their visa for Tibet first, and I didn't know if I was going to get one, but I did. I even hitchhiked up to Lhasa with Roy's wife. He came up later. So. And this is like high in the Himalayas. Yeah, this is pretty high up from Nepal to Lhasa. It took us about a week to get to, to have those adventures. And I think to be at that high altitude that I've never been to that high before. And just to know that I could do it. Yeah, it was almost like a testing of your own abilities. Yes, exactly, because mm -hmm. it was just so far. And then after that, then when I came back from there, I was just like, an adrenaline junkie. What am I going to do next? You know. <laughs> yeah. Once you get that taste of what you're capable of, yes. it can kick something into gear. Almost like this whole other wellspring of energy or ideas. Like nothing's impossible. Where should I go next after Tibet? Well, Pakistan. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> well, and Pakistan has like become your jam. Oh, I love Pakistan. It, it doesn't get a lot of good press, but it's so something. <laughs> Tell me about the first time in Pakistan. Oh, God, that was so funny because I think it was even September 10th or something, and I and I landed in Karachi like 2 in the morning, and I go, oh, God, no. You're this, by yourself. Yes. This is going to be horrible because I thought it'd be like India, you know, when they just, as soon as you get to India that time of morning, taxi drivers, people harass you, take you places and stuff like that. And I had met an Afghan going through customs. I said, oh, come to the city with me. And we were going to share a taxi, but he got detained. So I had to take off on my own. Yeah. But then Pakistan compared to India at two or three in the morning was really nice. The people were really nice. They took me to the place I thought I wanted to be, but it looked like it burned down. So we had found another one. And I just stayed in Karachi by myself, kind of wandering around, and I wanted to go to Kashgar. So I had to find the Chinese embassy, but then I had bought my ticket for Peshawar, which was lucky because since I had a ticket for Peshawar, he gave me my visa in one day, you know, because he knew I was going to be gone. So then by the time I got up to Peshawar, then I had my visa to go into China for Kashgar. What's Kashgar? That's Chinese Turkestan. That's way up in the border of China, way up high. It was very important on the Silk Road. And then it's right by Russia, so you could cross over into Russia there. So it was like the old British days that was a listening post for them during the great game days. Because oh. they wanted to see what the, the British wanted to see what the Russians were doing, and the Russians wanted to see what the British were doing. So that was really a strategical point. Plus, it was a really big point on the Silk Road, mm -hmm. one of the, you know, one of the big, big major stops. Mm -hmm. And the Silk Road is like a trade? The trade route. Uh, well, there's many different branches of it, but, it, you know, it went all the way from China all the way over to Kashgar, which is the other side of China. And then, you know, down to India, over to Afghanistan, Pakistan. I mean, the history of the trading times was just amazing. That's how people got knowledge. That's how people learned about different things. It was all through traveling. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go there and see that. And that was a long trip from Peshawar to get up there. It took a long time on jungly, jungly buses. And so I'm just glad my constitution's so strong because I think I was always getting run down, you know, without mm -hmm. sleep or eating properly or the weather change and things mm -hmm. like that. I think you were always a little bit run down, mm -hmm. always. Mm -hmm. Never top of your game. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
I keep thinking like all of these stories, there's just such a trust in people that you have to have right. in order to be able to do these things. Right. Where do you think that came from? And, and was it ever broken? No, I don't think it was ever broken. Can you believe that? Yeah, that's amazing. I've always been lucky with people. I've never, you know, made really super bad and dangerous choices. Maybe if I did, I might have forgotten about it or put them out of my mind. But I think you quickly weigh things out in your mind. You're not even thinking about it. You just look them in the eye and know it's mm -hmm. going to be okay. And just like such an amazing experience to have that trust and have those relationships with people all over the world so much of i think our misunderstandings socially politically culturally comes from not having experienced another person in the way that you have experienced so many mm -hmm. different types of people from different places ways of life ways of being right do you feel like being able to look somebody in the eye made your world smaller or made it feel larger or smaller because you could connect to anybody mm -hmm. in the middle of nowhere and make a new best friend you know mm -hmm. really good friends in the middle of nowhere you yeah. know then you parted trails and you met somewhere else or maybe you didn't but I always trust people just automatically yeah so I was thinking back on like how you, how much you were fascinated with trade and you really got into the textile import export business yeah. that became your full-time gig for most of your life. Yes, it was. Um, when did that start? When did you first start buying textiles and different things? We did it in India from time to time just to bring suitcases home of kind of pretty much junk and supplement our income somehow and selling stuff. So that was always good. But, but I really started doing more major shipments when I got to Pakistan, not the first time, but, you know, just kind of learning about it and learning what kind of goods and where to shop and I learned a lot doing that, you know, looking at old silver, learning which is Turkmen, which is Uzbek, which is, you know, some other tribe. Because mm -hmm. you just learn so much, just like the rugs. You can see which is a Turkmen rug, which is a rug from this place or that place. So I always find it just so fascinating because you're learning so much at the same time. Yeah, learning about history. Learning and... about history and all these different tribes. And, you know, there's so many in Central Asia and they all have these different talents and different designs and it's that's why I think I like Pakistan so much in Peshawar because it's such a mix there of Uzbeks, Turkmen's, Kazakhs, anybody you mm -hmm. know I don't know and I love those Muslim people and they're uh, they're very kind and I felt that and I never felt afraid in the, those places mm -hmm. you know if you got you could get in a bad situation in Pakistan because you can't talk to men freely like you could in India or anywhere. So you have to be very careful not to just be too friendly because they'll take it totally wrong. Okay. But in shops when you're doing business and stuff like that, it always felt pretty safe. Walk me through what a rug buying process looks like. Isn't it like a ritualistic, long, <laughs> maybe not ritualistic, but it's a long process. Yes, it could be a long process. And I think that's how it is. And Turkey or Egypt or Morocco because you know you're just because they're dealing with tourists there but if you start to go to the same people all the time then you're doing business you know okay. and so you know it takes a long time like uh, not then but now like when I buy big shipments it takes a much longer time because you got to go in there the first day you got to drink a lot of tea 
you got to talk about how everybody's doing. You know, you can't just be looking at rugs right away. You have to waste a couple hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is there a translator or? There is my guy Shiraz who's been with me for maybe, God, might be 20 years now. I used to do that all by myself, but then when I found Shiraz, it made the world of difference, you know. Yeah, for big amounts, I would need somebody like that. But nowadays, you know, you have a yes, no, maybe pile. So it takes, you know, many days to go through all these rugs, decide on the ones you want. Then they add it up, and then I can send Shiraz the money. I don't even have to be there for the packing or the shipping because he takes care of all of that. And have you always liked that? Uh, negotiation and bartering process. Yes. It's something I'll never forget, like what I was used to here of the price is the price. Right. And then going to countries where it's like everything's fluid. The ways that you interact determine what you're going to pay for this. You know, I feel like a lot of people think that any kind of negotiation has to be this serious, angry thing. And it's actually can be fun and playful and just. It's just a totally different way of interacting. Right, it is, and it's and it is an interaction because you have to drink a lot of tea, you have to eat lunch, then you get tired and you want to go back, but then the the rug wallow wants you to look at some more rugs. <laughs> like Kaji Abraham's favorite line is, "Not one more rupees down, go." And what does that mean? <laughs> it means he's not going to go down another rupee. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Then, you know, when you deal with these same people over and over, it's just, it's really quite easy. You know, they know you're buying volume, you know you're buying volume, Mm -hmm. and Shiraz will fight them for the best price, because there's a lot of other prices involved when you buy overseas, the shipping, the customs, the duty, things like that. That's not the only price that you pay for the goods. Yeah. It's fun. I love it. It's just, I think I find Peshawar so historical and ancient anyway, I really get in a time warp there. Sometimes walking down those streets, I don't know exactly where I am or what century I am, and I love it. Very yeah. Kipling-esque. <laughs> yeah, and almost like fantastical. You're in a different world and can almost be somebody else. I mean, I'm sure you have picked up on just different languages along the way and enough to get by in probably a dozen languages at this point. Yeah, I can say how much in a dozen languages. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's a lot of Hindi, I know, and then um, mixing it up with uh, some Urdu or some Farsi because Urdu is a language that they invented for uh, the garrisons, you know, back in the day for the army, for the Persians and the Hindus, that they could come together and have a mixed language. So that's what Urdu is. I can get by uh, with a lot of it, but I can't get down and talk like we are right now with it. Right. Yeah, there's limitations. So I'm just kind of trying to paint a picture here. So... You started going to Pakistan and some different countries in that area, buying rugs and and goods and textiles, and then you would come back to the States and travel around and sell them. My friend John taught me a lot of things. He'd travel around and sell things so he could give me, you know, the different names of people in Seattle or Portland or stuff like that. So I went around and sold to a lot of stores, too. I had to do that because I needed big cash infusions because I was building that house at the ranch, you know, Mm -hmm. and I did it on credit card cash, bouncing credit cards around. So I had to get enough money to pay some bills and things like that. So I really had to sell on the road for four or five years and then had a website did selling like that. Now I just sell at the ranch and Mm -hmm. that's it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's easier. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the ranch a little bit. 
first workshop was in 75. Yeah. What was your relationship with the place, the mission? You were there in the summers and then would travel in the winters, right. like many people were. Escape a Montana winter. I think, you know, when I first came home from India, I came to New York first and I met Howie, came to Montana. And, you know, I hadn't been to Montana before or anything like that. It was still in September, so the weather was nice. And I think I still had a sari on and flip-flops <laughs> on. It took a while to get used to everything. But when I first got there, we had to sell the antiques so we could get money to fix things up. So I was kind of a big part of that with her for the the earlier stages and then traveled a lot then I had some more marriages and then I you know traveled a lot so I was always kind of peripheral to the mm -hmm. the ranch's business and things like that mm -hmm. so I was there kind of during the summer and then in the winter like with Tom we were all living communal there and we all worked to get firewood and things like that and kind of keep it together so we could stay for a winter so we were mm -hmm. all kind of a group then in those early days. In the early, early yeah. days, yeah. Yeah, I remember stories from him that like, you were in one room, he was in another, <laughs> LW was in another, yeah. and you'd had to run across the floor in the main lodge, which was absolutely freezing, the last frontier. <laughs> run to the kitchen, to the wood stove. Yeah. yeah, or turn the oven on and open it up, you know, just to keep going. Yeah, it was funky. We were funky. Yeah. And as Judith Lassiter said, it's called being in our 20s. <laughs> yeah. You could yeah. do those things. It was fun. How has your life turned out differently than you would have imagined when you were in your 20s or you were, you know, in those younger years now that so much has happened and it's almost like you've lived a dozen lifetimes within one? So I never had big expectations like I have to be a millionaire. I have to have a house. I have to have children. I never thought about those things. They just kind of took it more day to day. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think without expectations, you can kind of flow more easier. I'm not sure because that's the only way I am. Yeah, I just was curious because I feel like sometimes I can get just caught a lot in like what I want life to look like or what I am trying to plan for. I mean, I don't know if it's more of a modern internal crisis. <laughs> I think it's hard not to have expectations for myself. Yeah, I just wonder like if you had like a vision for what you wanted or how things were going to go and never I never yeah. had a vision <laughs> like that. You know, like when I was building my house, I'd get some of it done and then I'd say, "Oh god, okay, I got to get some more money, get the rest of it done." But I didn't have a vision of the whole thing or where my future would be or what I would be doing. No idea. Mm -hmm. I still don't. <laughs> Did you ever along the way like feel any pressures to be a certain person or as a woman, you know, or anything? Like any part of your life, did you feel like, any external pressures to be something that you weren't? I don't think I had any external pressures to, to be something, go somewhere, or do this. I mean, I think in the early days I knew I wanted to go, you know, meet India in India and do that, but it wasn't like a pressure or... A burning desire I knew it would happen when it was supposed to happen mm -hmm. so yeah I never felt like oh I've got to do this or that that's pretty amazing is it isn't that normal for me I feel <laughs> a lot of pressures I feel like it comes from the internet and just being so connected to seeing all of these different oh, things maybe and being like it. this is how this person is living it's ripe for comparison when you can see so much 
what it means for us culturally in this country to be successful or to live a particular life that looks a particular way. Like I've definitely over the years had trouble with that. Wow, that is so shocking because I think someone like in your position that's so intelligent and so has your shit together type thing that you would just be so happy that you're just going, oh yeah, I'll see where this goes. Just like with your new business kind of, I'll see where that goes. Are you feeling pressure to achieve more, do better? Do Yeah. Oh, honey. (laughs) so sorry. I feel like it's in the background. It's something that I'm conscious of and something that I kind of have to be in a dance with. Well, just keep the guidelines, have them there, but then kind of go this way, that way. And if you need the guideline, take it. (laughs) Well, it's just cool that you've been able to somehow bypass all of that and just do what you wanted to do. I know it. I I feel lucky like that, but I I knew no other way. Yeah. Like sometimes I'd say, oh, God, I move into this apartment. I don't have enough money. Then I'd think, oh, shoot, you could always collect pop bottles and get some more money if you needed it. You You can't do that now, but you could think along those lines. Or the money will come or something will happen, but I can't live my life about having pressure. I mean, as far as I can tell, some of that does go away with age and you just start to be like, I am who I am. You just got to keep doing what you're doing and what you like doing and and don't let yourself get under pressure. It doesn't make anything better. So you just, I mean, maybe if you wake up in the morning and say, I'm just going to take this minute to minute, sit around and wait for something to happen. <laughs> what are what are some places that you still want to go to? I want to go to Balk, Afghanistan. And that's on my list. There's a couple things I have to do. I've got to go back to Nepal next year for sure. Juliana and I are going to go to Morocco. And then I've got on my last trip, I've got to make it to Afghanistan where I can go up to all those remote areas where all those beads come from and Mm. feel the civilizations that walked there before me, you know? Yeah. So that's what I got to do. So I always thinking I got to get in shape. I got to get ready. (laughs) Yeah, because that's not, I mean, that's not like cush traveling. No, no, I don't need cush traveling, but I wouldn't just go there on my own now and just try to find a bus or a taxi to take me somewhere. Yeah. I would go with some like kind of group, an anthropologist group or something yeah. like that. We got to see. I, I hope I have a few more trips left in me. I don't know yet. I mean, does it make a difference to you why you're traveling these days? Like going to Afghanistan to go see the stones? Yes. And you know, experience that energy. Is that different for you now than just like, oh, I'll go to Mexico and see what happens? The intention, yeah, because I think now when I want to travel, if I want to go somewhere adventurous, then it would have to have like really meaning like been there before or I'd have to say, oh, I just want to see where all these ancient civilizations were rather Mm -hmm. than just showing up and taking it from there. Yeah, you're right. I would have it more planned out. If you were younger and you could still hitchhike around and stuff like that, that could work perfectly. But now it doesn't work perfectly. So Mm -hmm. I guess I have to learn to change with the times. Mm -hmm. And what about your relationship to Montana? You know, you've been here in Helena, you've had your house here and had the ranch. Right. I've always kind of stayed here for the summer. I used to go away all the winters and come back in the spring because I'd stay gone for six months a year. And now I don't like to do that at all. I don't think I would even want to stay away for two months now. I'm really, 
I'm really comfortable being at home. I was comfortable beating. It was comfortable means I was peaceful mm -hmm. and I felt content. So maybe I never felt content in my life before. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Maybe that's why I wanted to go to all those places and see all those things. Yeah, but now I'm feeling more content doing nothing. That might be age. Who knows? <laughs> I'd love to hear your most memorable or jungliest trip. Right. Is there any that you've been writing about or is there anything like, you know, Mount Kailash seems to be a big one. I might have sent you a copy of it. I kind of wrote it out a little bit. I think I was probably in my 50s then and that, even though I was older, I was still young enough to go off on a cryptic message and find a Tajik who spoke broken English. That's the one I was going to ask oh, you yeah, about. That's, yeah. that's one of my all-time faves. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> I was in Peshawar and I had finished up you know, my shipment and everything. And then, you know, Indy and I had a really old friend there, Colonel Kushwaka Moosh. <laughs> he was from the royal family of Chitral. And India met him in 68. I met him in 88. She told me, she gave me a cryptic message to find the colonel when I went to Peshawar for my first trip. And so then I used to stay with him and, you know, he knew everything about adventure. And so, um, I was with him and I always used to carry a map of Central Asia with me, a really jungly one, because I always wanted to go travel in Central Asia. This was before it was opened up. But he said, no, go to Chitral. And he had heard there was a Tajik who spoke broken English and have that Tajik take me to Tajikistan. So I went up there with that cryptic message in mind. <laughs> On my cargo jeep going up, there was just jeep travel, cargo jeeps that carry stuff. I met this guy named Dominique and he was Italian, but he had a business in England where he took people out on horseback rides and stuff like that in those part of the world, Sanskar or anywhere like that. He was up there too and we just made friends. He was going to meet his guy who was bringing the horses back from another camp. But anyway, as it turned out, Colonel told me to find the Subadar, his Subadar. That's the man that takes care of the lands and tell him to find me the Tajik. But then when I found the Subadar, he said, do you have a note from the Colonel? And I didn't have one. So he said, oh, that Tajik's gone back to Tajikistan. But when I was in town for a few days by the fort, you know, I was visiting Colonel's wife. He could tell that I knew some people. So I love this thing where, you know, me and Dominique are cooking at night and he squats by our fire and he says, his name's Abdul and he's in chunch. <laughs> <laughs> so he knew then he could give me that information. And then I told Abdul, let's ride the horses up next day. Do you mind? And we rode him up there and we found a Tajik, but he said he didn't speak any broken English and he didn't want to travel with me because he didn't know me and the Taliban were giving trouble and all like that. So um, Dominique and I came back and I was really dejected and really sad. And then uh, Dominique said, well, go to SWAT. You know, I know an apple seller there. You can get... I said, no, I'm not going to go off on another cryptic message. A few days I said, maybe there's another Tajik who speaks broken English. Let's go back to that chai shop and see if we can find him. But then I met this Mr. Begg, who was Colonel's old driver. He was up there too, and he spoke pretty good English. And so he went off with Dominic, and I waited in the chai shop while they went off to find Abdul and bring him back. But it was the same Abdul. But now that Abdul said he would take me. <laughs> so we were in this back room, and this is just so favorite, because it was just like, there was big jerry cans of kerosene. There were hides. There was like a, a slate table. And I was said, oh, my God, I'm putting my first caravan together. What do we need? 
because Mr. Begg said he'd go along with us. So I was trying to figure out how much to give Abdul. But Mr. Begg had to go shopping for sugar and tea and flour. How much flour do we need? How much sugar do we need? We didn't even have the horses yet. We'd have to carry packs. I went up to Mr. Begg's. That was a little farther up the road in a cargo jeep. And then we had to leave at 2 in the morning to go way at the end of the road before the Wakan quarter starts. We packed my luggage up in plastic sheeting so it looked tribal mm -hmm. and lots of ropes around it. And I wore some men's clothes just in case. <laughs> But he did find us some porters to carry our stuff at first. So we went out with them, and there was one of those horrible bridges I call D minus, where there was no place to hold on and nothing on the bottom. You're crossing oh these rivers. And, you know, it's a good thing you don't know these things when you start out an adventure. You'd never go, you never would. But anyway, we got to some other place, and I was so exhausted because. Well, we got up at 2 in the morning to go up there, and I didn't know what I was doing or anything. And so uh, we were on this. Um, porch of this man he had given us some lunch and I fell asleep in the sun and there was a big fight that woke me up because Mr. Begg had let the porters go because he found some horsemen to take us up you know oh. big fight there but we gave the porters some sugar that was a really good commodity to have up there because okay. there wasn't any sugar and then we took off with them for a while and then Mr. Begg he was from the Wakan so after a few days we were able to find his brother that came to the pass to meet us and his horsemen. And then we let our horsemen go, but they were pissed because we let them go. And it was a big fight with them. <laughs> but finally, we, we got to leave and I didn't have any proper papers for up there or anything because I just, I didn't think about that. So we just kept traveling together. And then eventually, Abdul ran away. So I only had Mr. Beg. We didn't make it to Tajikistan, but we went to his brother cousins out in the middle of nowhere because they were yak ranchers. So we were camping with them and they had the horses and, but the family and everybody was up to a farther camp, a summer camp. So we looked around there and rode around there. It was just so remote and primitive. And then we went up to uh, the next camp. And that's where the, the yak ranchers were with all their herds and stuff. And so we stayed up there for a few days while they got the animals ready to bring down again because it takes a long time. They yeah. had to pierce the noses of some yaks and then they had to load them up in these cone-shaped things. You know, they had to bring everything back with them. It was quite adventurous to be on a yak drive. <laughs> <laughs> I like that a lot, really. But but that was a trip that, you know, I never knew it was going to happen till, yeah. till after it happened type thing. Yeah. Abdul ran off. Lucky Mr. Beg was with us. And then Abdul had the nerve, like it was during Ramadan, I came back to America and Mr. Beg wrote me a letter for, you know, the end of Ramadan. He said, oh, I saw Abdul. And he said, he'll go with us next time we want to uh. go again. <laughs> <laughs> He's ready to go for you, ma'am. Oh my god. I know, but just those kind of crazy things where you, like, you just can't even believe you're doing them. I mean, you can't even believe you're there. I was in that strip of Afghanistan, that thin strip called the Wakan Quarter, you know, and that's what you have to cross to go to Tajikistan. But since we didn't go north, we went east or west to be with the Yak Ranchers. Oh my god. <laughs> that was funny, just thinking that I could put together a caravan. <laughs> wow, I was just so impressed with myself, a chance to put a caravan. Because I read, I mean, all those books are about caravans, practically. Oh. Every one of these <laughs> books are major travel books. 
where everyone's always putting caravans together. Are these historical books that are yeah, here in your Yeah, these are all library? history books. Okay. They're all history about, you so know, Afghanistan or Pakistan or Central Asia, just different explorers that wow. did these different things back at the turn of the century. Yeah. yeah. Do you see yourself as an explorer? Like, how do you kind of see yourself if you're talking about mythical stories? I'd like to see myself as an adventurer. You know, I have a little bit of a goal, like trying to get to Tajikistan, but if it deviates or something else happens, okay, that's okay too. Except for Kailash, I wouldn't give that one up for anything. I knew I had to get there no matter what. So, yeah. and because I'd never been to Tajikistan before and I never knew that Tajik and I didn't know what to expect up for any of it. I thought, well, anything I do up there will be great. There's a, a bit of a life lesson in there for me where it's like everybody always says like, oh, it's not the destination, it's the journey, but it it's true. It is the journey and how you handle it and what you do because we're always thinking of the destination at the mm -hmm. end. Oh, this is where we want to end up, but we don't know where we're going to end up. Mm -hmm. All of the elements that you have to withstand to do adventure like that, yes. it's, it's really like pressing yourself to the limit it is in so many ways or even seeing where that limit is or where you thought it was right and beyond your limit mm -hmm. because you don't know what's going to happen next you know mm -hmm. what kind of d minus bridges you're going to have to cross mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just interesting like the ways that what we want and how we want to do it how that changes over time right because right. even now i mean i'm you know, in my 30s, but I feel like I travel differently than I did in my 20s. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I look for different things. I want different things. The The type of adventure I want to have is different. Right, right. Um, but I've just been so inspired by how long you've done it. I mean, the, wasn't the story you just told, you said you were in your 50s? Yeah, because I started that kind of traveling when I was 25. Yeah. And that was kind of late because most hippies started earlier, you know, 23, mm -hmm. but since the marriages and things... You know, you mentioned like, I don't know how many years I have, you know, with that type of travel left and just like the things that you think about when you get to a certain age and people you love passing away and then life changes and, right. and it changes and then it goes on. And so I'm curious of where you are just with understanding of life because in theory, a closeness to death. I mean, right. we can kind of be close to death anytime. Right, but no, I agree with you. And that's what happened after I had the COVID. And then after I went to Mexico and I knew I couldn't do it, that was really a an eye-opening experience for me. I think I'm, I'm glad it happened like that, even though at the time I was a bit disappointed. But at least I was smart enough to know that I couldn't do it. I think maybe being content is the best part because then you're not, you don't have the desire to go do those things. You don't have to prove anything to yourself or anybody else because you don't know when you're going to die. And I think when you get older, you know, every day could be your last more mm -hmm. than it was when you were 20 or something. Mm -hmm. I think about that more, not that I'm afraid of death or anything, but I think I'm coming around the clubhouse turn into the home stretch. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's how it is, and hopefully with age, you get wiser, too. Mm -hmm. You and India were, you know, you were sisters. You had a ton of adventure together. Mm -hmm. You spent summers here at the ranch, and you ran that whole show for 46 years. Right. Do you still connect with her? Like, what's life been like since she passed a few years ago? 
I really miss not having a sister. I really do. Although we fought a lot, we still, we could yuck it up and laugh at the stupid things. And that's what we loved about each other so much. We were in Nepal. I took a shortcut. I got bit by leeches. And then I was pulled my dress open so she could see the blood. And we were just cracking up. We could crack up at the same things, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like only sisters can do. But yeah, I think um, you just see the impermanence of life. We've always heard of it. But I think as you get older, you, you can see it easier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think to end, the tagline of our podcast is the magic of living a connected life. How are the ways that you are doing that these days? How do you stay connected? You know, I think by now making this extension over there where I have a place to hang out and bead and I'm not always on my kitchen table cleaning up squalor, you know, yeah. I think that I finally made a place for myself, like a little hive where I can do yoga. And I think I'll feel more connected and I'll have places for people to stay and visit. I want to spread out a little now that I know that, oh, I might not be traveling as much. I'm not going to be gone six months a year anymore, that's mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Happiness kind of comes and goes and sorrow and this and that. But if you're content, that feels very positive. I think my whole life before I was never content. You know, always looking for something else, always having to prove this or that or do something. But now I feel content. Vijay Supra, a force to be reckoned with. This woman has inspired me so much over the last six years since we met. The way she has built a life that fits and fulfills her, never getting sucked into a version of someone else's dream or putting pressure on herself to be someone she's not. To hear her stories makes me yearn for exploration, freedom, and movement. A bubbling up that starts somewhere deep in a place in my soul and can only be filled with that terrific and terrifying feeling of embarking on something totally unknown. I imagine that after the last few years we've all had, I'm not the only one craving the excitement that travel brings. A chance to shift perspectives, gain new knowledge, and push the limits of our capacities and capabilities. I also appreciate the ways that VJ talked about listening for and honoring the ways that her needs and wants change over time. And it was really inspiring to hear her say that after a lifetime of moving around and seeking and yearning for adventure, she now feels content, and maybe that's what she was looking for all along. If you visit the Featherpipe Ranch this year, make sure to find Vijay and say hi. Any time spent with her is time well spent, in my opinion. A special thank you to Matthew Marsalek and the Drum Brothers, whose music you hear at the beginning and end of this podcast, as well as Dr. Jean Shinoda Bolin, who first turned us on to the phenomenon of the dandelion effect, and how these ideas move through the world. This podcast is a production of the Featherpipe Foundation, a 501c3 dedicated to healing, education, community, and empowerment. If you'd like to help support this project, please visit featherpipe.com gratitude to donate to us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to tune in to our next episode in two weeks. We cannot wait to share another amazing conversation with you. Until then, have a beautiful day.